Welcome to Fitzdog Radio. I think I look a little pale. Look at a touch pale with this lighting here in my I'm in my bonus room of my house. I just took a nap, so I'm a little groggy. Naps? Uh overrated. No matter how tired I am, I feel like I'm better off muscling through. I laid down for what I thought would be 10 minutes, and I woke up like an hour and 15 minutes later, and like I just got out of a coma. Like, so, like I felt like Bill Cosby should have been standing over me pulling up his fly. Like, I was checking, I was checking my, my privates to see if they felt violated. And uh, now I just got kicked off the uh, algorithm on YouTube. Got to worry about that. Reggie Watts is my guest today. Holy shit, I've been looking forward to this. I read his book this week. It's amazing. We talk all about it. We'll get into that in a minute. Uh, but in the meantime, we got the Best Buddies Benefit tomorrow night, my annual benefit that I throw for the Best Buddies. And I went on Corolla this week to promote it. I went on K-Rock, the local LA FM station. It's sold out now. Sorry, it can't come, but come next year. Amazing lineup. We got um, Nikki Glazer. We got Andrew Santino, Bobby Lee, Ron Funches, Sarah Silverman, Annie Letterman, and a special guest, Chris Tenney, who you have not heard of, but uh, Best Buddies is a group that helps people with intellectual disabilities, and Chris is on the spectrum, and he's done it every year. I don't know if he does any other shows. This might be the only show he does per year, but he gets very psyched up for it. He, his father helps him write material and he crushes. He does really good. He's got smart jokes and his delivery is fantastic and the place goes crazy and, and he's a good hang in the green room. He likes to hang out in the green room and everybody talks to him. Uh, Norm MacDonald, uh, God rest in peace. I guess about three or four years ago, he came down and did it. And he and Rogan was there and Rogan smoked a blunt with Norm and Norm's not a big was not a big pot smoker. He smoked some a little bit. So he smokes a fat joint and then another one. And then he says to Joe, do you have any more? And Joe's like, yeah, I got some in my car. You want me to get it? Norm's like, yeah. So he gets more pot. And then he starts talking to Chris Tenney. And I'm like, oh, this could go, this could get weird, but not weird at all. It was like Norm looked into Chris's soul and just connected with him. And it was like the most kind of beautiful exchange. It was like, it was like Norm was the spectrum whisperer. He just, he just, I don't know. It's hard to describe. It was kind of magic. And then Norm went up on stage high out of his mind, made no fucking sense he didn't care. The thing about Norm is he did not care if he bombed. He just kind of, he would just smile and just keep on going and just like ruminate on some weird ideas and see what happens. And uh, anyways, that's tomorrow night. I had the big Christmas party weekend, a lot of Christmas parties. I don't know about you. I feel a little bit mixed about them. Some are good. My neighbor had a nice one. My next door neighbor had a great party. Hung out with all my neighbors. They had oysters, which was a nice touch. 
and you get to snoop around their houses. When you have a neighbor, you're constantly wondering what's going on in their house. So I looked around, didn't take any jewelry, but I looked around a little bit. Beautiful house, uh, and they're lovely hosts, and it was it was really nice. And then I left, and I went to a billionaire's mushroom party, which I can't say that phrase very often. But uh, Tom O'Neill, author of Chaos, and Mike Gibbons, co-host of Sunday Papers, we headed off into Bel Air, and we went to a guy who's he's worth $10 billion. I'm not going to say who it is, because that's kind of one of those things, is when you go to a billionaire's party, you don't talk about them. I can say him. It's a he. And you know who he is, but I'm not going to say who it is. So we go in and it's this insane party. You go in and they have two different bars just with shrooms, with a shroom tender that that, that sets you up with the right strain for what you want to experience. We went to both bars. We took some from each bar. And then we and then there was a pot bar, two pot bars. There were flamethrowers. There was a tent where you could get a tattoo. All these people were lining up to get tattoos. Real tattoos, not henna. There was uh, a DJ, which is always sad because nobody was dancing. It was a bunch of... The, the, the crowd was... This guy made his money in tech. And it was a lot of cocky tech geeks. There's nothing worse than a cocky geek. Because even they know they don't fit in. But they've got the cool shirt and they've got the cool haircut and uh, they've got the Asian girlfriend. It was a lot of that. It was two-thirds guys and they all had Asians, Asian girlfriends. Um, there was a Polynesian drum circle. There was, uh, you could get your aura photographed and read to you. There was a comedian who I'd never heard of, so I didn't go inside. There was a magician. There was a cigar shop. There was the most insane sushi bar. It was like the size of my house. And there were like 12 people making the most succulent, juicy, insane sushi you've ever had. Um, Wine cellar. Uh, It went on and on. It just was crazy. Candy store. And so it got to it got a little overwhelming, and then me and Gibbs snuck away, and there was a chess table in the middle of the main bar, and me and Gibbs played chess on shrooms, which was very enjoyable, and I made some bad moves, but I accepted it with grace. And what else did we do? Oh, and then I went to a Latka party, Latka Palooza. My friend lives up the street and she had, uh, it was very hot. We lit Hanukkah candles and saw some good friends. That was good. I skipped out on the Venice boat parade. They have, they go through the canals every year and they light them up and there's music and I don't know why. I, I, I was burnt. So I didn't go to that. I skipped the comedy store party, which I heard was insane. There was a fight. Uh, somebody got banned for three months. There was, uh, there's not a lot of sex at the comedy store. Like when you think of Christmas parties and people hooking up, nobody hooks up from the comedy store. It's more like people get fucked up, but there's no screwing around. As, as far as I know, what do I know? I'm the married guy. I'm the last guy to find out stuff like that. 
and instead we just went to see Napoleon. I took my wife and daughter and her friends to see Napoleon, and it was good, long, but that's not a critique. I don't I don't consider a long movie a bad thing. I if it's a good movie, let it be as long as it wants to be. Ke- Joaquin Phoenix is amazing, and the woman from. The Crown. She plays uh, Elizabeth's sister in The Crown. I, I should remember her name, but she's amazing. Um, worth seeing. Uh, all right. I don't want to waste a lot of time because I want to get to um, Reggie. We had a couple of overheards. This came from Brett Kerr. By the way, if you want to send me overheards, it is uh, at it's just the website is fitzdog.com. Go there and there's a link. You can send them to me or email me fitzdogradio at gmail.com. I reply to all emails. It might take a minute, but I get to them all. And Brett Kerr said at a scrappy used tire place way outside of Boston, the mechanic said to his friend while I was waiting for a tire, quote, Last time I saw my fucking brother was when... I should do a Boston accent. Last time I saw my fucking brother was when I had my foot on his neck outside the courthouse when my dad died. Wow. That doesn't sound like it's that far from Boston. That sounds like it's in South Boston. And maybe they were already scrapping about who got the car or who got the triple Decca in Dorchester. Triple Decker is a type of house in Dorchester. You live on the ground. No, you live in the second floor. You put your parents in the ground floor so they don't have to walk up any uh, stairs. And then you got like an uncle and an aunt up on the third floor. It's a triple Decker. And everybody pays the rent together and everybody drives each other crazy. And the cops come. This one was from, where's your name? I lost it. Uh, two women talking about decorating a Christmas tree. Oh, this is from Thomas Burr. Uh, two women talking about decorating a Christmas tree. I'm not afraid of heights. I'm afraid of ladders. I get that. Ladders are fucking tricky. And, you know, unless you got somebody holding the ladder, you shouldn't be on the ladder. Um, my mom... I flew her out to San Francisco when I first made some money. When I very first made some money, I was about 29 and I was hosting a game show on MTV. So I flew my mom out to play Pebble Beach because she's a big golfer and that's the best course in the country. So we flew out and we're sitting there in business class and this guy is sitting across from my mom on the aisle and he goes, uh, he starts asking us, who we are and what I do. And I never tell anybody what I do because I don't want to talk about being a comedian on a plane because then it's a very one-sided conversation. I get just get asked a lot of questions and it, it's awkward. So the guy says, uh, what do you do? And I said, and before I can answer, my, my mom goes, he's a comedian. And then the guy says, of course. He's like, so do you make a living? And my mom looks at him without missing a beat and she goes, he's about halfway up the ladder. And I'm like, what? Half? Are we in fucking coach, lady? Halfway up the ladder. First of all, I'm not on a ladder. I didn't. I didn't, A ladder is for a paper salesman. A ladder is for a guy in the insurance world. For comedians, there's no fucking ladder. Don't put me on the ladder. 
Anyway, I'll be speaking of comedy. I'm coming to you people. Fort Worth, Texas this weekend, December 15 and 16 at Hyenas. Milwaukee Improv, December 29th through the 31st, New Year's Eve. Den Theater in Chicago, January 13th, one of my favorite places to perform. Also coming in January, uh, Atlanta, Portland, La Jolla, and Tampa. Go to FitzDog.com for tickets. Also, this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp, look, it is an amazing thing uh, when you have a family and you want to get together. There's gift giving during the holidays. What do you exchange? How do you focus on this time together? Um, my family, we don't really give gifts. The kids get gifts. I don't. I get my mom a gift, not my sister. We keep it really simple because we don't want to drive each other crazy. But then you get into politics with. But then the in-laws give presents, and my cousin Lori gives presents, and uh, it's it's a it's a nightmare. So. Um, it's it's all about give and take. It's about sharing and receiving. And sometimes I can bring stuff up. So go to therapy. Talk about it. Uh, give yourself some love this holiday season. BetterHelp is a, 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 a service that I used during the pandemic for two years. I got hooked up with an amazing therapist, which, by the way, you fill out a questionnaire and you talk about yourself and then they pair you up with somebody who's appropriate, a licensed therapist with expertise in that area. If you don't like them, swap them out. No problem. It's it's easy. It's way cheaper than in-person therapy. And you're not driving through rush hour traffic. You're not sitting in awkward waiting rooms looking at people. Um, it's, it's on your own terms. So I can't think of a better way to start helping yourself than with them. Uh, in the season of giving, give yourself what you need with better help. Visit BetterHelp.com slash FitzDog today. Get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash FitzDog. Also, you should not have to worry about buying tickets to an event. Everybody stresses out about the timing of it. Am I buying too early, too late? Am I getting screwed? Well, game time makes sure that it's a relaxing process that you don't lose sight of the fact that you are spending money on something you will remember for the rest of your life game time gives you last minute tickets flash deals zone deals um and it's this is for comedy this is for music sports theater anything you want game time's got your back you can take a look at your the view from your seats from the app the app's a piece of cake Couple of taps, you got your tickets, no downloading, no transferring, no printing. It's easy. Um, right now I'm looking at tickets on my phone for uh, Rolling Stones. Right now, $80. Uh, they were 200 a couple weeks ago. So you track it, you pounce, and you get yourself uh, uh, something that you're going to enjoy. Uh, don't buy things, buy experiences. Uh, and game time is the way to do it. So, take the guesswork out of buying tickets with GameTime. Download the GameTime app, create an account, and use code FITSDOG for $20 off your first purchase. Terms apply. Again, create an account and redeem code F-I-T-Z-D-O-G for $20 off. Download GameTime today. Last-minute tickets, lowest price guaranteed. All right. Let's get to it. My guest today has a new book called Great Falls, Montana. And he is a self-proclaimed weirdo. 
He, the book talks about growing up biracial and kind of an oddball in Montana, girls, drugs, kind of coming up with his own identity. Uh, the New York Times called him a giddy rush of escapist nonsense. Uh, he was, uh, you probably know him, he was on the Late Late Show with James Corden for the entire run as the band leader and announcer. Um, he was on that show Comedy Bang Bang with Scott Aukerman. Uh, he's done it all, and like huge online. He's, he was he was at the forefront of kind of viral clips, and you should watch some of his TED Talks. Those are great. So uh, we had an amazing time today, hung out at the Comedy Store, and uh, this is it. Enjoy my chat with the legendary Reggie Watts. All right, here we are in the bowels of the Comedy Store in the studio. I don't know if they have a name for it yet. The Comedy... uh, Cellar? (laughs) Outlet Store? Uh, Comedy Outlet Store. Yeah. This? this, You mean this room? Yeah. The podcast room? Oh, the Comedy Dungeon. The Comedy Dungeon. You know, Reggie Watts (laughs) has officially named the podcast studio because they just built it. They needed it. Oh, they did? Comedy Dungeon, man. It's a dungeon, man. It's a dungeon, man. (laughs) Oh, it's in the dungeon. No, not in the upper room. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah, I'll be there. (laughs) So dumb. So, uh, how are you, weirdo? I don't fucking know. I'm good. I just woke up. Well, kind of, I just woke up. I woke up like an hour and a half ago, but I still feel like I'm waking up. Um, I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. Has it been your life? Are you like a sleep till noon guy? Yeah. Really? Uh, on average. Well, you know, it's funny. Last night, uh, I went to, uh, I went out to dinner with a friend and she was like, let's stop by at a friend's house. And so it's, um, Bunch of people from the clowning community, you know, from the Elysian Theater, like, oh, okay. all, like Chad Damiani. Yeah, yeah. And, um, um, oh, who was there too? A total surprise was uh, John C. Riley. Uh-huh. John C. Riley was there because he's like kind of clown based. People don't realize that. One but, of the great storytellers I've ever met. Yeah, right, yeah. right. I mean, geez, I mean, he's like kind of like a Mark Twainish kind yes, of a guy. Yes, yes. You know what I mean? Like in our current time. Yep. Um, so he was there and he told me all kinds of stories, but I happen to have quaaludes. Because uh-huh. uh, Quaaludes haven't existed since 1983. Were they left over from the 80s? I was going to say, I no, haven't seen one since no, I was in high school. Someone figured it out. I guess the precursor is really rare to, yeah. in order to create the, the the chemical. Right. And somehow this dude figured it out, and I'd never tried it before. And so um, me and a friend, the woman that I went to dinner with, she was super stoked on it. She's like, I've been dreaming of trying Quaaludes. And I was like, yeah, me too, for like 30 years. Yeah. And, uh, and so we tried them. And... I have to say, they're definitely not like anything I've experienced before. People say it's the greatest drug they've ever taken. Yeah. And I, I missed it. I was afraid of it in the 80s. Yeah. I mean, I understand. Yeah. Got, but the messaging about drugs in the 80s was Oh, no, clear. I did a lot of drugs, but oh, okay. I just didn't do quaaludes. Quaaludes. Yeah, yeah. Right. How about Black Beauties? Yes, did Black. Well, that's just speed. Yeah. That's, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I did a lot of mescaline. I sold mescaline for a Wow, minute. you did mescaline, but you didn't do quaaludes. That's insane. I, w- I would be more afraid to do mescaline than quaaludes. Yeah. I don't know why. I think mescaline to me felt like acid light. It wasn't like I taking see. LSD. Yeah, right. Yeah, LSD is a huge commitment. Yeah, and microdosing wasn't a thing back then. No, it was a full dose. Yeah, people were just like, no, you do the drugs. Yeah. <laughs> have, have you done LSD? 
I have many times. Yeah. Yeah. I had kind of like an amazing major trip when, when I was probably like 20, 23 or something like that. Yeah. And it was this really pure stuff uh, called Shakta Shiva that was made by the chemist who did most of the Grateful Dead acid. Okay. Whatever. And uh, it was mind blowing. Yeah. I mean, it was life altering realizations. I got into math after it. I became a vegetarian. Really? It was insane. I'm not a vegetarian anymore, but I was a vegetarian wow. back then. It like changed. I All this shit changed. It was crazy. I was What'd you say? I just, I don't know what it was. It was almost like, it's like the entire, like the seams of reality were just undone. And, yeah. and I was just seeing like the limitlessness of the cosmos or whatever. And then, it, and, and it kind of ignited these interests in a way that I'd never had them ignited before. Like it wasn't like in school, like math was like, I'm afraid of math. I'm terrible right. at math. I'm not into it. Yeah. Especially ge I got as far as geometry and then I started falling off. Yeah. And uh, for some reason on this trip, I just, it, it opened my mind in a way that after I came off it, I was like, I know what to do. Like that type of thing. Yeah. Like, like I'm going to only eat these types of things and, and I'm going to study sacred geometry and I'm going to blah, 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 blah. <laughs> sacred geometry? Yeah, sacred geometry. Like uh, the old school. Um, it's like, uh, like the, I guess the Greeks and the Romans practiced it. It's geometry, but they ascribe meaning to the different shapes and organizations okay. of shapes. Yeah. Right? So like you've heard of maybe the tree of life or the flower of life pattern. Okay. Which is, it looks like a, kind of like a, uh, hex, hexagon, but it's yeah. made out of interlocking circles. Okay. So it's like a bunch of circles interlocking and they, but the general outline of the shape is kind of it's like uh, the uh, Da Vinci code shape. Kind of. Yeah, yeah. 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 There's tons of stuff like that. And a lot of like, uh, adventure movies about ancient cultures that they, they do use sacred geometry. Cause I was just a part of their cultures back then wow. for building buildings, like how the pyramids were built and things. They used sacred geometry. Right. Right. So it's like a spiritual form of geometry, but it's still geometry. I fucking love geometry when I was in high school. It was the only math I really loved. you really, yeah, oh, man, I don't know lucky. why I had a great teacher, Mr. Amsalem. And, uh, I don't know. It was maybe I, Jill Garfunkel was in my class and she used to wear uh, Angora sweaters, low cut, kind of tight. Oh, and it's weird because I tough. think about her still. Yes. And then I think, wait, I'm not supposed to think about her because she was only 15 and I'm 57. I shouldn't be conjuring <laughs> a, seven, a 15 year old. <laughs> yeah, but you were that age back then. So that's legal, so right? I'm grandfathered in. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. that's completely legal. <laughs> <laughs> you shouldn't be hard on yourself on that. It's like, you can let that go, man. Just be those eyes. Be yeah, the young be eyes. Those eyes. Ooh, those eyes. Yeah. I mean, hundred percent. Of course. Yeah. I still, I don't know if I have, I don't know if I remember like, like any girls back then specifically yeah. enough to have that kind of a vision. Joanne. Well, yeah, Joanne for sure. Well, Joanne, yeah, I do have pictures of her, so I can go, oh, that's what she looked like. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. That's true. But like none of like the crush, you know, like in classroom crush from yeah. afar, like, oh, she's so hot. She'll never go out with me. Like that kind of vibes. Yeah. Didn't, I don't remember those people. I remember the names, but I remember yeah. what they look like. Because when you look at the pictures in the book, you're like, why was I attracted? I know. Why to was that her hair so big? Yeah, it was she so looks like huge. a weirdo. The, ha the yeah. hair was so crazy. And we were like, that's the shit. You know, yeah. that's, that was cool. Sometimes I, I, I meet those girls now when they're older and, uh, you know, they're still beautiful, but, um, it kind of ruins it. I don't want to see them now. Right. Yeah. 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 I know. I, I don't know if I've seen, 
I actually haven't seen that many of my, I mean, so when I go back to Great Falls, I will run into people, but not those main girls. Like I haven't run into Autumn Clark or yeah. um, uh, any of the, the few other, Kristen Gunderson. I haven't seen her in a long time. I yeah. had a crush on her for a long time, but yeah, I haven't seen any of those, but I've seen like many other classmates. Yeah. 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 Um, so speaking of, speaking of uh, <laughs> the book. Yes. Great Falls, Montana. Yeah, uh, I read it and I fucking loved it. Oh man, I, it was such a great journey. It was such a honest, like it had a great narrative. I mean, because you have a very interesting story, and you know, I think the theme of the main theme of it is that you live your life in improv, not just in the microcosm, but also in the in the choices you make about where you're going to live, what you're going to do. Like it all just sort of, I don't know if you, I don't know if you believe in attraction as much as. Uh, I mean, what is, what is your sort of like theory on how everything unfolds that, that takes you to the next place? Yeah. I mean, I, I just say like, I have this, I have this dumb rule. Well, it's not dumb, but I have this rule. I just call it like follow the fun. Yeah. Um, and so for me, it was about finding the good times, like the spaces that felt good, the people that felt good to hang out with and, um, and if I followed that, the generally it would lead me to really cool, interesting situations. Yeah. And then that would kind of let me know, like, maybe I should, oh, maybe this is now it's time to do this, uh-huh. you know? And, um, and luckily I, you know, could listen to that and could make a respond to it, you know? Um, so I think that's kind of, that's kind of was it. It's really kind of simple. Like I'm right. always looking for what's the fun, groovy situation mm-hmm. and I want more of it. Where is it going? Oh, it's like, oh, people are, where is this at? Oh, this is in New York. Okay, well, I guess I better put out some feelers and see if New York's available. And if it is, then I'll go over. And if it's not, you know. Right. It's crazy. And, and, but I never, like, push too hard. I just kind of put it out there. Yeah. And oftentimes someone would be like, hey, do you want to move into our house? we got space. And yeah. Like, oh, okay, cool. Right. You know. Like well, that. that, I mean, my son's 23 and he's a little lost right now. He's in Central America for five months, hitchhiking yeah. around Guatemala and Classic. Mexico. But career-wise, has no idea what he wants to do. And I just keep saying to him, you're in your 20s, man. The 20s is about just like... You can't come up with a plan and then execute it because it's not based on anything yet. You don't know what you love. Mm-mm. So just open yourself up. But whatever it is, do it. Yeah, yeah. Just yeah, commit yeah. to it. Yeah. And then it'll all add up. That's what I love about the book is that who you are today is an amalgam of all these different periods that you went through. And it all synthesized into something that nobody else had really done. Yeah. 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 I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a trip because, um, you know, for me, like I said, I just want to be like a part of the adventure part of, you know, the, the story of, of what makes life exciting for myself, but also I want to provide cool experiences for my friends and other people. Yeah. I've always been like that. And so, you know, luckily I've gotten to run into some extraordinary people and they're like, oh, I know someone who, you know, because they're excited, you know, people are excited to hook people up with other people right. that they, they're excited about. And luckily I found the right veins and um, just kind of listened to it. And not every decision was great, but, you know, mm-hmm. all decisions are lead to who you are. You right. know? So even the bad ones, you know, so yeah. I appreciate all of the decisions I made. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's just crazy. Sometimes, and, and also... It's just like the time I, I couldn't imagine growing up like I grew up exactly at the right 
time period. Uh huh. You know, I talk about this a lot, but some of my other Gen X friends will be like, yeah, I wouldn't trade. They're, they're all in agreement. They're like, I wouldn't trade growing up in the nineties versus growing up in the eighties for anything. Yeah, right. Um, and cause that, you know, like I went to school and you know, kids had knives and guns in their car uh-huh. hunting after school. Yeah. And there was, and no one ever thought that ever someone would like bring a gun into the school right. and start shooting it up. It just wasn't in the consciousness. It wasn't a thing. Right. And so, you know, in Montana, at least that was the norm and we didn't think anything about it. it was yeah. like, oh, after school, we go rabbit hunting or something. Right. I'm going to kill some gophers and you know, um, I've got my pocket knife and that was it. Right. It was very, very, so I don't know, I, but then I, you know, extrapolate, I mean, going beyond that, moving to the nineties and then moving to Seattle and the Seattle 90s. in the nineties. I mean, you kind of nailed on. it. I mean, that was crazy. Yeah. Like to I almost the went day. To New York. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. To the day. Yeah, yeah. I know. I know. Insane. Insane. You know, and then moving to New York, you know, in 2003, exactly when Rafifi was taking mm-hmm. off. And so every time period or every city I moved to was pretty much exactly the right time to move there. And to explore what it was and to kind of exhaust the potential of it until the next, you know. Right. But also it seems like you showed up at places where it was like um, there was a need for creativity, you know, and and that, and that you were there was no gatekeeper. You It was sort of just like, hey, we need people. We got this grunge kind of thing blowing up. We mm-hmm. need some people to staff it. And then you go to New York in the '90s, and all of a sudden it's like, wow, we got the we got all these cool all rooms. We need people that are weird. Yep, yeah. And you just were there. Yes, yeah. I know. Like everything just kind of happened. It blossomed at all the similar times. Like, like, like me getting into weird comedy was what the guys in the state were already doing, or what right. Mr. Show was was onto already, and. Uh, in me seeing those things just reinforced my desire to want to be involved in making comedy like that. And yeah. Comedy Central was pretty amazing back then. They had Exit 57. Oh, yeah. Remember that? Yeah, with, I do. With Amy uh, Sedaris. Yeah, that's right. Oh, they had well, all these cool little shows and they gave them they gave them room to play. And they kind of said, here's the keys. Lock up when you're done. We'll let you know if you get another season and yeah. people do whatever they want it. Totally. So you were sort of part of that. You you had some play on Comedy Central a little after that. Right. I mean, when I when I first moved to New York in 03, I. Uh, t- it took a few years, but yeah, like there, there were brushes with Comedy Central, but I think. Yeah. If anything, it was uh, Super Deluxe mm-hmm. that was the first kind of place that allowed me to do whatever I wanted to do yeah. and have it live online. Right. Because they were trying to, you know, capture the viral video phenomenon. Uh-huh. So they were giving- They were a little ahead of their time. They were ahead of their time and they were giving money away though. I mean, they, they had were. like really nice budgets. And right. so, you know, and I made some pretty dumb stuff and it, I, I don't know what happened to it. It's not online anymore. No, they buried it all. I did some, I hosted the porn awards one year in Las Vegas. Oh my God. 7,000 porn stars and I'm up there hosting it and they're like- they're like, all right, here's the deal. You're going to have about 30 seconds to get their attention. Because picture 7,000 porn stars, you know, wow. with cameras on the crowd, all flashing. Like, you got 30 seconds to get them. And if you don't, we'll probably have to pull you off stage because they'll just start talking oh and it'll gosh. be over. And so I had a really good opening joke and I got them. And then uh, Super Deluxe gave me all this money to shoot videos. So I shot all these sketches where like Ron Jeremy is the TV repair guy who comes oh over and we had, we, we had like, we shot like 10 videos and they gave me like a ton of money, 
But then Super Deluxe got bought by the Cartoon Network. Oh, that's right. And that's why everything got buried because anything that was edgy, they didn't want associated with the Cartoon Networks. They just flushed it. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I hope that they vaulted it or something because that would be nice. I mean, I I made this dumb thing called Zip Code, and I don't know what happened. Like, uh, it, it was it was it wasn't great. But what I, was the idea? The idea was uh, <laughs> it was a series that was based on I would do like kind of a travel log, like uh-huh. a history and travel log of each zip code in New York. <laughs> That's great. Like I New love York that. City or whatever, yeah. the different boroughs and stuff like that. Uh-huh. And so I did like Williamsburg was the first one, whatever, whatever that zip code was. And it was all just fake shit, you know, like I we did, shot a thing outside of Arlene's grocery and it was, um, I'm trying to remember, he was a friend of uh, the state and he was on Wet Hot American Summer, I forget, I forget his name, but it was Zach something. Yeah, not Galifianakis. No, not Galifianakis, it was uh, kind of a bigger dude, um, kind of Sounds familiar. L- long, kind of bobbed, uh, straight brown hair. But, not uh, Michael Portnoy. No, okay. no, I'll, I'll remember his name at some point. He, he, um, but he was like this dope actor and he's like acted in a bunch of things since then, but he's like, it's just a straight actor. Yeah. But he, I had him outside, uh, with his arm around this girl who was like chewing gum all the time. And uh-huh. like, he was talking about the history of Arlene's grocery, which was just a bunch of bullshit. Yeah. And, uh, he's chewing his gum and every time the camera turns back, it's a different girl <laughs> chewing gum, <laughs> but wearing the same outfit. <laughs> And just like, every time we just like cut back, it'd be a different girl. <laughs> Always doing that. And then gum. it comes back to the the first girl at the end of the last shot or whatever. <laughs> and uh, really casual, no big deal. And uh, and then we had Jenny Slate did, was, was a Latina, which I'm sure wouldn't fly today. No. But like, um, she had like big hoop earrings and she was talking about some bar where she had all these experiences. And then I talked to her and then we did this retro thing about this guy named something McCaffrey Murphy. And it was like all done in sepia tone and it's him working hard at night working on these designs he's drawing robots <laughs> yeah and um but like i can't remember what it was I, anyways it was just like it was a hodgepodge of just the craziest dumbest stoner yeah. ideas that me and my friend at the time tommy smith uh who's a brilliant writer we just put it together and we shot it like with really low budge cameras and stuff like that but we got a budget and we got to you know make rent and and that's pay amazing for food. wow you know um that was dope yeah, that's uh I love the zip codes in New York. I was once in one zero 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 one. Whoa. Which is Little Italy. Oh. It must have been like the first one of the first like uh places they gave out zip codes, I guess. Yeah, one zero 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 one. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I love the the symmetry. It's really great. Yeah, I know. I've never lived in a symmetrical zip code. Um, I also lived at an address that was 2000, and I was there in the year 2000. Oh, that's great. That's my street address in Venice. Yes. yes. Yeah. Venice? Yeah. Okay. So you lived in L.A. in the thousands? I, yeah, I was in... Um, I was in New York doing comedy in the 90s, all through the 90s. And then I moved out here in like 2000, but I was going back and forth to New York like right. every few months because I was I was on the Howard Stern show. So I would go in there oh, like okay. every two months and do, do a spot. Yeah, like two months. Sick. And then I'd run around and do all those those crazy rooms. So like, of course. So like uh, Bobby Tisdale is a good buddy of mine. We play really? golf a lot together. Yeah. He, he's, he's the best. Man. Yeah. You mentioned him in the book. He's so awesome. Yeah. He was, he was good. Chris crazy. Yeah. A crazy man. Yep. Brilliant, big hearted, uh-huh. crazy man. And, and totally like identifies with roosters in, in the most unique way. 
Oh, I didn't know that. He had like he's he had like this thing with roosters, and wow. it kind of made sense. Like he did some there was some show he did or this web show he was working on, and it had a featured a rooster in it. And <laughs> anyways, I don't know him and Jimmy Slate, Jenny Slate at one point when they were married, and they named their dog after me. Oh, really? Yeah, Reggie Watts was the name of their dog. That's hilarious. And um, I would go over to their place, and I don't know, it was just like what a strange time. But yeah, yeah but yeah, but New York, like. Yeah, Bobby, Bobby Tisdale, man. And he Bobby grew too. up in the same town as Zach Galifianakis. Oh, he did? Yes. What? I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Isn't that crazy? I love it. I love it. I mean, I didn't like know- a little last town in North Carolina. That, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, that is pretty crazy. Yeah, because Bobby, like, I see him. Well, he does voices on Bob on Bob's, Bob's Burgers, Burger, right? Yeah. Pretty cool. Yeah. They were, that was such a wild time back then. Like, I just felt so lucky to be there at that time. It was- well, you talk about it in the book, and what's kind of crazy is you didn't go to New York to go on Rafifi. You just kind of went, because Eugene Merman was hosting a show there, right? Yeah, so, that, that was Invite Them Up, yeah. Yeah, so you showed up to New York because you had you had sort of like a, 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 a one-month contract with a band to record yeah. with them or whatever. And then you just kind of showed up, and you just kind of went on, and you yeah. just kind of destroyed. Mm -hmm. And then it wasn't... <laughs> That was it. You were in. Yeah. Just like that. Yeah. I mean, people spend years trying to just get seen. And you just kind of, the universe just opened up and you walked in. I mean, yeah, I got really lucky. I think it was just because we were all like-minded, you know, yeah. like we, we, I think like, it's like water droplets getting too close together. It's right. like, it's just, it's just like. That's what it felt like when I walked in there. I was I was like nervous, but it also reminded me of high school when I was performing in competitive drama, right? Humorous uh, solo, whatever I was competing in, that. and I was you know in front of these people that were like just staring at you, going like, "Okay, you have to do something now." Yeah. You know? And I'm like, "Okay, well, I'm gonna do this stuff. I don't know if you're gonna like it, but I'm gonna do the, a bunch of stuff." Yeah. But then people were like, "Oh, I like that," you know, and it, it had that similar feeling where I went up because what I was doing, no one else was doing, and. Uh, and so I always had a little bit of worry that I'm not doing stand up, but that whole room was about weirdo exactly. comedy anyways. Right. So you had like, you know, Dimitri Martin with easels and, uh -huh. you know, and PowerPoint and uh, multimedia, you know, so, right. um, multimedia comedy art, uh, com comedy stuff. And then there were performance artists that would perform Michael in there. Portnoy used Michael to do crazy oh, shit. Portnoy. What was this? What was the thing he did? It was all sound effects. It was czar or Zav or Czar or something like that. Uh -huh. And he would, and he wrote all the music on synthesizers and it was just like synthesizer sound. So it was just like, and he would pretend like he was manning a spaceship and it was all miming. Uh -huh. And he had like the skin tight suit and yeah. this crazy, like evil guy looking beard, like Ming the Merciless kind of vibe or yeah. whatever. And he was just like, <laughs> just, just for like four minutes and people were like just staring at him. And I was like, this is the most brilliant thing I've ever seen. Yeah, he went on Luna Lounge one night and he pulled his dick out and he stuffed it into a bottle of Prozac and then he threw the Prozac at the audience. Oh, shit. Oh, my God. That's great. And then remember he did the famous thing on Bob D Bob Dylan was playing at the yeah, Grammys. Yeah, Soy Bomb. And he came out on stage. He somehow got hired as a backup dancer. Like he was legitimately, had the laminate, was in the show. Yeah. And then unbeknownst to them, he rips his shirt off halfway through the song and it says soy bomb. And then he snuggles up to Bob Dylan. Like, yeah, that's right. And Bob doesn't react at all. Not at all. He barely reacts. Yeah. It was incredible. Yeah. That was the coolest. I've never, I mean, Bob's probably like, I've seen it all. 
Yeah. I've been through, I lived through the sixties <laughs> and psychedelics <laughs> right. and, and people jumping on stage. It was like, this I is nothing. I got food at the Royal Albert Hall. Yeah. Yeah. I can handle this. Yeah. I mean, that was like, that was like, ex- like very experienced showmanship. Yeah. But yeah, no, it was, in, it was insane. And then yeah. he gets tackled right. by the, by the security. Yes. <laughs> and nobody knew if it wasn't a bit, the audience just thought, oh, this is a weird concept that Bob Dylan came up with. That was that was insane. Michael, Michael was insane. And I went on to work with him. Like he invited me to several art things. Like he did, we did a thing in, um, Balzano, Italy, where he, they opened up an art wing, um, or like, yeah, like an art wing to the university that's up there. And so they invited him to curate a bunch of artists to, to occupy the rooms and yeah. do different pieces inside of it. So I did that. You flew out to Italy for that? Yeah. Yeah. Flew, yeah. We got, wow. yeah, we got flown out to Italy for that. <laughs> um, he invited me to an, another thing. I can't remember where that was. It was another country, uh, went to another country. Yeah. He had like some workshops. So I worked with him and his wife, then wife Yeva for, for a while, but, yeah. but that was the interesting thing about, thing about New York and that, that time period of invite them up, you had invite them up. And then you had like this crew of performance artists called the art stars and they were uh, performing at the Bowery poetry club, I think. Okay. Um, and they would have these, again, it was like very similar. You had invite them up with a bunch of weirdo comedians. Then you had whatever the name of that art star night was at the Bowery poetry club. And it was similar. It was a lineup, but it was performance artists. Yeah. And so you'd have crossover Cirque, artists you'd have um i don't know just straight up performance artists or conceptual people and they would do these things and they were insane i mean like some of the stuff was insane like a woman with like a a, what a rotary saw like like putting it on her on her crotch with like all this blood (laughs) flying everywhere it was all fake but like like this blood flying Uh, everywhere and everyone's just like oh my god you know it it was just it was chaos it was total chaos but you had like this so sometimes i would perform there Uh and then i would also perform on invite them up yeah and so it was such a weird existence at that time in new york because you had like very new yorky things going on like weirdo semi dangerous feeling performance. Well, the Lower East Side was sort of finding itself at that point because it had always been artistic. There'd always been a lot of like grungy, you know, artistic Mm -hmm. people. But in the 90s, it sort of became a place that was attracting audiences that, like you talk in your book about wanting to break the rules, but also wanting to appeal to the mainstream. Yeah. And the Lower East Side was sort of finding that footing a little bit at that time. Totally. Yeah. Well, I mean, things kind of opened up a little bit, like Invite Them Up and The State and what you know, Luna Lounge. And, yeah, Luna Lounge. Yeah. yeah. Uh, all, all of those people doing what they were doing um, found a way in because the internet also, it was like the perfect storm, right? It was like right. a bunch of weirdos that were doing strange but you know ridiculous absurd shit and then the the internet which is absurd in its very nature and so everyone's experimenting back then there wasn't a youtube yet but there were places to put videos and it was all a bunch of it's just a bunch of weirdos kind of dominating the taking advantage of the internet and so that kind of became a little bit more mainstream yeah and then it just slowly started building so now you know you had zach galifianakis getting a major special and you had ucb getting a show yeah and then david cross kind of being an early pioneer you know being on sub pop records he's like he was like oh what he's on a music label right he's a comedy guy but he's also performing in rock clubs he's opening for afghan wigs or whatever you Uh know like there was that crossover of like 
really hip underground music mixed with com- comedians. Yeah. It was all happening at the same time. It was insane. Yeah. And, yeah. and yeah. And to, and you know, and that's something in the book, like I, I didn't, I don't go into it in great detail because most of it obviously it centers around great falls, hence the name. But, uh, I definitely but you're saving it for the next book, I do obviously. I do I do want to like yeah. yeah my my idea is like I want to write about Seattle uh-huh. um and then I want to write it about New York and yeah. then maybe LA but um yeah cuz I really want to get in there because I don't think people realize you know I say this a lot but I like to promote it but you know what happened in the 90s in Seattle and then what happened in New York in the early 2000s or the or the aughts the aughts the aughts where neo hipsterism kind of like rose from the chaos of kind of performance art outsider mm-hmm. comedy uh were very very important movements in american entertainment uh and and especially the new york part it hasn't been there's, there's no documentary on it there's no one is talking about it. it's like mm. very very important because everybody that you see in movies and tv shows today are related to invite them up like some yeah, Michael Showalter is one of the biggest directors in, in Hollywood right now. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. And then uh, Michael Ian Black doing all his crazy stuff that he's still doing. Yeah. Um, and uh, David Wayne directing. Oh, uh, no. I'm thinking, you really of thinking of David, David Wayne. Wayne. Yeah, yeah. Michael yeah, Showalter yeah. has directed a little bit. But Michael Showalter, I don't know what Michael Showalter is doing as much, but David Wayne's destroying it. Um, and then you've got the state. They just got back together and they've had such an impact and influence. But then you right. get all the TV shows and movies. You see like whatever, Jenny Slate or Aziz Ansari or mm-hmm. uh, uh, Kumail Nanjiani or uh, Chelsea Peretti, you know, uh, or key and peel which are mildly related right uh, you know they're just they're all dominant uh characters in the land in the yeah. modern landscape yeah so i want to get into the book um there's so much i want to talk about i i you know let's start at the beginning yeah um well the other theme i think that comes through the book is that you have this kind of zen you talk about observing yourself almost as an outsider, which is a, a lot of the way meditation is taught is like be a fly on the wall. Mm. Just observe, you know, your feelings, observe your thoughts and don't you don't necessarily participate in them emotionally as much. Right. So, I mean, would that where would you say that was a good thing or a bad thing? Because there was times where I felt like you thought it was keeping you from engaging emotionally with people. And there were other times where mm. it felt like it was a positive thing in your life. Yeah. I mean, I think, I, I think the, 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 probably the space where it was the, was less helpful was in romantic relationships mm-hmm. because that being kind of observational and that kept it more in a fantasy zone in a way. Like I was kind of projecting the fantasy of what I thought a relationship should be. So I was, I was observing the fantasy right. of it as opposed to becoming more open and, and vulnerable to another human being. You were so staging it. I was staging it. Yeah. Like I was living the fantasy of, of the idea of right. a relationship. Right. So I think that it wasn't helpful as helpful there. I think it's incredibly helpful in art for sure in what I was doing because I'm observing what I'm doing in real time, especially as an improviser, that is all you're doing. You're listening and observing and responding. And so in that case, yeah, it worked really, really well. But, uh, in total in life, I was always looking, that's why when I was talking about earlier about finding the fun, um, I was always looking for the good time, the good vibes. And, and that's part of the observation. I'm like, Oh, that's great. Oh, I bet you this would be cool. Oh yeah. This is happening. Yeah. Let's just do it. Uh, yeah. And I'm kind of 
I'm, I'm active in it, but I'm also observing it because I'm, I, I, cause I like the feeling of, uh, feeling like I'm living in a movie in mm-hmm. a way and that that's good, but also not great when it comes to people going like, I'm right here and I have emotions and I want to talk about stuff. Yeah. Do you find being in that state creates energy for you or saps energy from you being that available? Yeah. No, I, I think it creates energy. It, def- it definitely gives me, um, what do you call it? What would you call it? It gives me, yeah, it's a form flow. of it. It's a form of energy. What was it? Like flow? Yeah, it's, it's yeah, because like I, I'm I'm listening, but I'm, I'm getting rewarded by, I'm kind of like slightly projecting expectations and, and, and oftentimes I'm getting rewarded, like, like it's accurate. So, so it's this engine of like, I'm projecting with the expectation or yeah, I'm projecting an expectation Then I'm getting back something that's pretty close Mm -hmm. to what I was expecting. And, and it's almost like a beam of like a man, real time manifestation beam or something Mm. like that, you know? And, and, and uh, I mean, similar to it's, if that sounds like an alien concept, it's a similar thing to having a natural conversation with somebody. Right. You're, you're both like. I'm projecting this thing that I think that you'll like that, you know, we'll do this. And then someone's responding like, yeah. And then, and they're, you know, so it's this constant back and forth, but it just starts levitating because you right. create this nice flow. Uh, right. Uh, right. So yeah. Yeah. It's funny. My, my daughter's, uh, she babysits these two little kids and they're five and three. And so she came home last night and I go, uh, how was it? Did you guys have some fun? And she goes, she said for two hours, the five-year-old sat at a fake cash register at the table and kept asking the little boy what he wanted from the store. And then she would punch it up and tell him what it was. And she goes, it was like a two-hour improvisational exercise. She said they were completely connected to each other. And you think that about kids, like life is just an improv. Yes. If you really watch them, everything is, they accept yeah. It's and they and they go with it. Yes, yes. I mean, that's true. And also that that never stops. Like, uh-huh. like I think we think we, we get older and we're like, I'm an adult now. And, and yeah. now I know how things are. So, you know, now I don't do that anymore or, or, or whatever. But everyone's constantly improvising. Yeah, right. Like that's all we're ever doing. I remember having that thought. I think maybe it was on Mushroom or something like that. I was like looking at streetlights and sidewalks and mailboxes. And I was like, all of this stuff was improvised. <laughs> Like, so, so I was like, I'm going to design. It's like, what do you think? It's like, I think that works. Yeah. Why don't we add this? Okay. That looks good. Okay. Well, let's just put it up. Yeah. You know, like, let, you want to standardize it? Sure. We'll standardize it. But everything's made up. Mm-hmm. Like all the stuff, the, the, this table, the glass, everything around us that's man, man-made. Money. It's money. Yeah. Money's a crazy one to think about the improv that went into creating paper currency. I mean, yeah. I mean, people just wanted to. You know, figure out a civilized way to control resources. To yeah. not have to bring a donkey to the market to get some oranges. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> Someone else can do that. I'll just, I'll pay for the service. Yeah, you know? right, yeah. Totally, yeah. But it's important to remember that, though, because I think people feel locked into life and they think like, oh, this is it. This is how right. it works. I guess this will be it until I die, you know, right. basically. Yeah. Uh, and I'll have some fun time, you know, but like every, every day you can do incredible things, yeah. you know? And so I try to live my life in that way, but that that's an improvisational mindset. I like it. So, uh, you, um, 
your grandfather, I want to ask about your grandfather's death. You kind of, you explain it in two sentences and it could, e could easily have been a chapter. Uh -huh. So this was your mother's father, it's your father's father. Father's father, yeah. And this is in Cleveland and he was a, uh, a, a polygamist. Or a philanderer. Yeah, he was a say. philanderer. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't say a polygamist. I don't think it was official. Uh -huh. um, uh, it was unofficially official. I yeah, he was. Uh, yeah, he was a gangster. I guess he ran the numbers. No kidding. Know? Yeah, so he was involved in that, uh, and <clears throat> and uh, yeah, he was having an affair with a couple women. You know, uh, aside from my grandma and. Uh, Apparently he was with a woman at a spot, you know, hotel or some motel or something or someone's house and they were together. And then one, the other person that another woman that he was seeing, they was cheating with, uh, knew he was there, found him there. And both of them got so angry that they, they stabbed him to death together. I think so. Yeah. That's, that's the story I heard. Wow. Yeah. So he, he died from women. <laughs> and yet but your father i don't think was a philanderer was he he was kind of a philanderer not flagrant no not not bad he just like was dating a lot of uh, women okay and when he met my mom um she knew that he was doing that and you know after a while was like you gotta knock this off yeah and uh and then he did yeah yeah but right. he he had some of it, you know, right. I definitely have some of that too in me, but I'm not, I don't do it underhandedly. It's like each generation right, gets right, slightly right. better. It's like, yeah, his, it's like yeah. his father was like, I'm not telling anybody I'm just doing hardcore cheating. Then my dad was like, I'm just going to date a lot of women. We'll see. I'll go as long as I can until yeah. I can't anymore. And then now, and now I'm like, well, I'm dating a few people, but they all know that I'm dating other people. Right. Right. So, uh, I feel a little bit more responsible and everyone, everything's above board. So, well, you said good. you're a serial monogamist, I, but I guess with a little flair. I was a ser serial monogamist for sure in my twenties. Yeah, right. But after 27, after my last breakup, um, kind of monogamous breakup, I, in my twenties, um, I, I hadn't date dated anybody else really. Like I just would meet these, this one person and then we would be together and then the steam would run out and then I would, you know, be by myself for a little while and then I would find another person. And then, uh, at 27, I just thought to myself, oh, you know what? Screw this. I'm just going to date a lot of people. And I would just be dating like seven people at once, uh -huh. you know? but they never knew about each. I wasn't forthcoming about it. I wasn't, I didn't lie. I uh -huh. just was vague. Yeah. Well, look, if you're in a band that's doing as well as yours was at that age, I think it's pretty acknowledged. That's true. Yeah, yeah. it's true. It's too bad. It's a stereotype, but, it, but it's a little bit of a stereotype. Yeah, for yeah. sure. But you know, it also like, it was exciting. It was super exciting. It was exciting to like, ah, oh, when I go to New York, there's, this, there's this lady there. She's really awesome. And mm -hmm. when, I, when I go to whatever LA, there's this really awesome, you know, and, and that was a wonderful feeling. Um, mm -hmm. but you know, it would have been different if I would have had the mindset now, you know, and was it at this point you kind of decided you didn't want to have kids Yeah, was I, that later? I think I, I think even when I was a teenager, I didn't want to have mm -hmm. kids. I, I kind of, yeah, I was never really interested in it. I think, I think it's basically because I, I don't know. I just always envisioned myself as kind of an explorer and I didn't mm -hmm. want to have connections to things that would stop me from like, Oh, I better not do that because I have to do this. And right. so, um, and even like with pets, I don't have never owned a pet in my adult life. Damn. You're taking this to an extreme. Yeah. No plants. No, I do have plants. So I have someone <laughs> who takes care of them.
<laughs> yeah. I'm terrible. Like, cause I also, I care about people and things too much. Yeah. So if I had a pet, I would just be like, Oh my God, how's my pet? My pet is my pet, you know, mm-hmm. and it would never be a dog. So I don't, you know, and I, even a fish would make, I'd feel guilty. Like I'm leaving yeah. a fish like, well, the fish it's, it's, you know, it needs some, you know, so I just rather not and just go over to people's houses and go like, Oh, there's that cool cat. Oh, yeah. there's that weird dog, you right, know, or right. my mom, you know, when my mom was alive, like she had her crazy dog and I would play around with that dog. Yeah. It was awesome. I loved it, but I liked being able to walk away. Yeah. Well, my condolences about your mom. Was it, she died this year? Was it a year ago? Uh, a year ago, on November 1st. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I just always, I've always followed you on Instagram and you always had beautiful pictures of you guys mm. together. And I always felt like that was a very special relationship. Actually, I, I marked a passage I wanted to read of you oh, yeah. describing your mom. This woman wasn't simply my mother or even my best friend. She was my protector, my guardian. She had defended me all my life against racists and bullies. She had protected me from the anger of my father, made the ultimate sacrifice by telling the man she loved he needed to move away until I had left home myself. She'd nurtured my creativity. She'd tolerated my rebelliousness with a good-natured wink. Whenever I'd gone back to Great Falls, she had always been there waiting for me, welcoming me, loving me. More than any single person or place, my mother was my home. She was my base, my roots, my power. Mm. That's pretty powerful. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's true. I mean, you know, I got real lucky with that one. Yeah. Got real lucky. And she was, it sounds like she had kind of a tough childhood in France. She was working. Yeah. Yeah, she didn't. She hated her mother. Her mother was a pretty terrible person. Yeah, and uh, cheated on her father when he was away at war, and uh-huh. um, had like kids and stuff. And when he came back, he's like, "What the fuck?" <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, or had like she she'd had like one kid, or had one kid with this other guy when he came back, and uh, yeah, and just had to do a lot on her own. Was her father's like she was definitely a, a daddy's girl or whatever, but he was away at, at war. And then when he yeah. came back, he was working as a taxi driver and, uh, you know, but they had a farm that they, in the early days she was on the farm with her father. Then the war happened and then he had to go away. So it was like, then she was left with her mother and her mother was like terrible to her brother. Her brother never allowed her brother Andre to, uh, go to school and learn how to read and write and things like that. She kind of kept him stupid on purpose. So really? He would do more labor. No things like kidding. That. Yeah. Very, not a very good lady at right. all. And so my mom always hated her and, uh, but had like good relationship with her, her aunt, uh, Nanette, who was also in the, in the war. But when she came back, she was like a war hero. And what did she do in the war? She, um, she was in prison. She was in a, uh, German prison. I don't know if it was this. I think, oh, I think it was a concentration camp. She was in a concentration camp. I never, understood, I never understood if she was Jewish or not, but I have, I did 23 and me and I have 10% Ashkenazi. Oh, well, there Jewish you go. And, and, and so it, I'm sure there was something there, but my mom never made it clear. It was really weird. Um, and, uh, but yeah, so she was there and she survived. She was like a human skeleton and everything. Oh, and wow. she like made it out and, uh, helped, helped uh lead a small resistance like at the towards the very end of the war no where things were like fading but she kind of like helped with that and got france's purple heart version of a purple heart and um yeah and was highly decorated that's incredible stuff. yeah so so she was really good friends with her and 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 her aunt was like a protector for her and mm-hmm. and she loved her father it, it was just like yeah the war being on our own having to 
try to protect her brother as much as she could. You know, she's just always a fighter, just right, fighting right. all the time for yeah. Um, Classic and, and, redhead and French. Yeah, and French. Yeah, yeah, redhead and a French. French redhead. <laughs> yeah. Watch out. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. It was amazing. Yeah, she's sick. And then uh, you you talk about it in that in that passage is that your your father was kicked out because he was abusive to you and your mom wouldn't have it. But then he comes back right before you leave. Mm-hmm. He comes back as a result of you leave, knowing that you're going to leave. He's allowed back in the house. Yes. And you describe it as being you were happy for them, which is kind of a big emotional accomplishment for you. Mm. Well, yeah. I mean, I didn't really think of it that way just because I was glad that my mom had my dad back, you know, because like, yeah. she lo- loved him and I knew that she did. And I didn't think of him as a bad guy necessarily. Yeah. And even, I mean, yeah, we, you know, before he left, what led up to him leaving definitely got intense. It wasn't like, it wasn't like being punched or anything like that. It was just the potential of it getting worse. Well, you got the belt though, right? The belt was a thing, but then like, sometimes I dealt with it in a kind of a comedic way, Yeah, you know? So it never really, it wasn't like, oh man, you know, like, oh my father, I'm going to, you know, it was never quite there. Cause I always, again, I had that observational way of being in life. And so for me, I kind of tried to twist it into something funny. I tried to make a bit out of it during the moment. Uh It wasn't always like that, but like for the most part, I tried in some way. So, so it doesn't feel as traumatic in my mind. I'm not Mm -hmm. like, Oh, my dad. And, you know, it was more like my dad tried it, but he, it didn't quite work. Yeah. And, and he was getting more frustrated and I started getting a little bit more in his face about stuff. Uh-huh. And so um, I think my mom was like, I think this could get worse. Yeah. Yeah. This could yeah. turn into something worse. Right. And so I'm going to preempt this. And, uh-huh. and thankfully she did. But then when I would go visit him in Cleveland, when he was living, living in Cleveland with his mother and kind of taking care of his mother and, and the grandfather was there. Um, I mean, you know, it was weird, but it was, you know, he, we went out to movies and, you know, took me out to stuff and we'd go fishing and stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. you know, I got to do some dad stuff, but yeah, uh, I was glad that he was out there. And then when, yeah. And then when it came time for me to move to Seattle, uh, I was stoked because yeah, I knew that she loved him and that, yeah. you know, and that he wanted to come back yeah. and now, now they were together again. And I was like, that's sick. That's good. Right. I'm glad. So, uh, all right, so let's talk about Seattle a little bit because that's an amazing time. You were you were in this band, Micron 7. Uh-huh. And I just, I was kind of like curious about that time when you guys would have these late night jam sessions at different places. I guess the, the 700 Club was one of mm-hmm, them. Mm-hmm. And that people, Erica Badu would come by and uh, uh, I forget who else you said. Uh, Chuck Treese, uh-huh. the drummer uh, yeah. from Philadelphia. Yeah, like a bunch of stuff with like the roots and or you know that scene where the roots right. were from and D'Angelo, D'Angelo, yeah, uh-huh. D'Angelo, yeah. We did D'Angelo never sat in, but like we'd have musicians that played with him that would uh-huh. sit in, like a horn player. Yeah, um, yeah, all kinds of people would come through and they would just like come in for that that jam session. Yeah, it was awesome. Those times were insane. Right, right. And so that band, you felt like at when it first formed, it sounded like there was some pretty. Comp- pretty complex music you guys were making. I mean, yeah, we were we were all Cornish students, yeah, you know, taking music, so learning jazz. So there was a lot of uh, pretty educated musicians right, on right. board, and the drummer Zeke Keeble was 
a crazy monstrous drummer. Uh-huh. He's insane. Um, and I, I don't, I've never played with any drummer that's plays like that guy. That yeah. Guy, he had his own thing. It was insane. Yeah. And, uh, everybody in the, you know, Kevin Hudson, amazing bass player, just really solid bass player. He was great. Everyone knew jazz chop. So the stuff that we were doing kind of was a mixture of jazz and, um, uh, our love of modern electronic and rock music that was going on at the time. Right. Right. Um, yeah. And you were in a lot of bands. You were in a disco band. That oh must've been a riot. It was like an eight piece band. I think it was like eight or nine. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. It was huge. Yeah. Four lead singers. Or and f- just blowing out the place, people dancing, high energy, man. It was insane. It was, it was crazy. Cause it started, um, uh, George, the guy who started the whole thing, it was his idea. Uh, he basically took people from the band Molasses. Mm-hmm. So it was almost all of Molasses. It was uh, the drummer, or sorry, the bass player from Molasses, Harry Worth, who was a sick bass player. Um, yeah, Harry Worth and uh, the keyboard player, Keith, and uh, I think maybe some of the, ho- the horn players. Uh, and then... There was George on drums, and then I, and then myself on vocals, and um, uh, one of the singers from Molasses, the lead singer from Molasses, was was on there, and then this woman who went to Cornish with me was also uh, there, and then this woman I forget her name. We had a kind of a fourth rotating okay. singer for different reasons, yeah. Um, but it was this huge band, and we started playing disco covers, learning them, yeah. And Casey and the Sunshine Band, all of it, like yeah. every disco hit, I've played every uh-huh. everything, yeah, almost everything. Um, Isley Brothers, Earth, Wind, and Fire, you know, um, all of it. Donna Summers, and we learned it. And different singers would take different different ones. I wanted to do Sarah's Smile, and so I did. I got to do Sarah's Smile. I uh-huh. love that song, uh, Hall and Oates, and so. Oh, it, Sarah's Smile. Yeah. Yes, yeah, uh, and it was just what an incredible thing to experience this you know insanely beautiful music that yeah. makes people dance and we started playing at this uh, the phoenix underground in its old location and the guy rick who owned it who's like a total goth dude uh-huh. and his like really hot girlfriend who's with jet black long elvira hair yeah. and like tight leather and he would have a white boa uh, a snake around his uh, around his neck <laughs> and he would dance with her like really slow like yeah. to like goth music like sisters of mercy and stuff like that but then like we came into his club and we did disco stuff and it just it ignited it was huge like yeah. we were making so much money every night it'd be like here's 300 bucks in cash whoa and yeah we're playing tomorrow night too so oh wow so i just made 600 bucks yeah you know that was the most money i'd ever made in my life right um and it just blew up and it got bigger and bigger we started playing you know graduations and uh-huh. colleges and uh-huh. universities it was awesome it was cool i think got to wear the outfits and you know well it's an interesting interlude and it kind of feeds into like you just accepting what you know what what life is offering up yeah. because here you are going to this, you know, art, artistic music school where you're, you're learning, you know, like you're learning to break the rules mm-hmm. and then disco comes along, which is seen at the time as this, you know, death to disco and mm-hmm. this is lame music, but at its heart, it's just funk, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's funk. I mean, you know, we, you know, hit explosion was obviously, it was a mixture of music. So it wasn't just necessarily disco, but it was funk. It was like yeah. funk and disco uh-huh. uh, for sure. Yeah. And 
uh, at the time, I mean, remember like uh, the seventies were having uh, like uh, days and confused was, mm-hmm. was popular. Yeah. There was this resurgence of the seventies in the nineties. Right. Uh, and then even I remember trip hop, you know, like when trip hop came up, uh, came on the scene and you had like the brand new heavies, uh-huh. like that stuff was straight, like, late seventies, uh, groove funk stuff. And you had like delight. Yeah. I was just going to say delight. Yeah. Which is another like throwback. And then you had Bootsy Collins in the band, Bootsy Uh Collins, rubber band band and Bootsy Collins and all these like weirdo, like crossover jazz fusion dudes, you know? Uh So the seventies were making a resurgence. Yeah. So when we hit with that, it was exactly the right timing. That's amazing. It was insane. Yeah. Yeah. And then I also played in an Afro pop group called Smenote, um, and I played Sukus music. I was the keyboard player. And, you know, so it was just like... It was... Were they African? Oh, yeah. Yeah, the two dudes. Um, I forget the, the name, but they played... They were djembe players, and the one of the dudes was like a master djembe player. He was insane. What's a djembe? Djembe is a large... Uh, skin drum that has like a kind of a hourglass shape uh-huh. to it. They're pretty big and they hang off of straps and they, and they just play them. Sometimes they'll be on stands as well, but usually worn. And then they have, these guys would add these like little pieces of sheet metal that would kind of like flat, look like flower petals coming off uh-huh. the sides of it. And they had all these like little pierced rings. So they would, they would play it and then they would just kind of make their hands hit it while they're, yeah. while they're playing. So you get this sh- Right. And and they're doing these like it's insane. These guys were crazy. So wow. it, was, it was cool to play in that band. And uh and that and was that, that sound, just you doing it now, sounds yeah. like it affected what you do today. Oh, for sure. I mean, I was lucky I got to, you know, I got to play in like, you know, in the nineties in Seattle. I played in like probably 20, 20 bands. I played wow. in like a black heavy metal band, punk, punk band. I played in a straight up kind of uh like heady heavy metal kind of Joe Satriani, whatever kind of stuff. I played in an avant-garde jazz band, Wayne Horvitz four plus one ensemble, which was very compositional abstract uh-huh. uh, music. I played, did a ton of performance art, weirdo music stuff uh, for contemporary dancers and choreographers. And I did the hit explosion. I did Micron seven. I did, um, yeah, I was in classical pieces. I did. I had night. I made a night where I made an improvised drum and bass band. Uh-huh. Uh, I had another night that was improvised classical music. Uh-huh. Wow. Where I sang operatically and I had no, like these string really? players just like, cause I was like, classical music is kind of like the blues a little bit. They, it has similar chord cycles. Oh, and so that. I just had like these sick players like Brent Arnold on cello and Avon Kang on viola. And, uh, they were already improvisers, but they came from the classical world. So they would just, we would improvise classical music and I would sing classically over it at the Hammer Museum. Um, was it, was it words or you were just, no, just it was, tones it was just and... like me making like fake Italian, <laughs> you know, it was, do you have tapes of that? I, no, I don't. Well, I don't, maybe I don't, I don't, I don't know. I got to say, if you get the book, one of the cool things is you've got these, what do you call these? QR codes. QR, he's got QR codes that lead to YouTube videos. And, you know, we talked about that first night you did Rafifi. It's on here. And it really is pretty magic that you captured that that moment. That was a turning point moment in your life. And you have a pretty good quality audio. 
Uh, yeah, I got lucky on that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, because I was terrible at preserving anything in the nineties. Uh-huh. Like, like I people were like, "Hey, do you have stuff from the 90s? I'm like, right. "I don't know." I don't Super think Deluxe I do. has it all. Super Deluxe. Yeah, and so, um, and the, the other cool things on there is you have like an early garage band that you play. There's a cut from that, and yeah. and you play. What's fun is you. You can hear you guys talking before you start playing. Yes. And it really feels garagey. Like, yeah. oh yeah, these guys are just figuring out how do you plug an amp in? It just yeah. seemed really fun. Four track, man. Yeah. Just four track shit. Uh-huh. Uh yeah, pretty cool. Yeah. My friend uh Mike uh gave uh I think he he had the recording and so he thankfully uh, gave it to us to use for the book. But uh, yeah, I mean, anything, because I, I was like hearing myself, what was my voice like? So I actually have a recording of my voice as a 17 year old, Yeah, you know, which is very rare. I uh-huh. mean, these days it's a dime a dozen, right? Like yeah, every right, right. kid growing up now has like, we'll have thousands of hours uh-huh. of them recorded in some way. And yeah. meanwhile, like me, I have like one or two recordings when I was like 16, right. maybe, right. maybe yeah. I might, if I look up in the attic, maybe I might find an old cassette tape yeah. where I was messing around with recording my voice someday, uh-huh. but yeah. that's it. Right. Right. Do you have a studio now in your house? Um, not really. I have a, I have a loop station set up. So uh-huh. if I have song ideas, I can quickly make loops right. and then, um, save them. So right. it's, that's, that's about as close as it gets, but I, t- I did try to have a studio for a while and I just never used it. Cause I, again, I'm an improviser. So it's hard yeah. for me to go like, I'm going to write music today. Uh-huh. Like I, I don't really write like that anymore. I have to write under pressure. That's the key because then you're not wasting your whole life. Totally. You know? yeah. yeah. It cuts out all the homework. I totally. I always tell people that they're like, you know, like sometimes before like a big show or something, like it'll be at like some place where. I don't know, like I did a guest spot with like Mark Revier and uh, Flying Lotus, you know, at at Brooklyn Steel or something like that. Uh And I'm just like talking to my friends, you know, like on the side of the stage and going like, yeah, you know, it's like, yeah, life, blah, 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 whatever. Yeah. And then someone's like, dude, you're on stage now. I'm like, oh, okay, well, all right. I'll I'll talk to you about, hold on a second. And then I go on stage and I just rock, rock to five, 6,000 people (laughs) and then just get off stage and go. So anyway, so what I was talking about. It's like, uh, I love that feeling. It's yeah. not like I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it in a way that I'm like, whatever. It's more like, I like the feeling mm-hmm. of instantaneously being in another incredible reality mm-hmm. and then shifting instantaneously into another reality yeah. Reality from that. There's, I get off on that. Right. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so in, as far as Corden goes, you were there for what, seven or eight years? Eight and a half. Eight and a half years. And are you... Did you archive all of that stuff? Yeah, I mean, all of it's, yeah, all of it's there. Um, the recordings, I mean, obviously every show is recorded, every show, and it's all, it's syndicated now. So those all exist. Um, but do you have it sort of like uh, uh, amassed on one hard drive or anywhere? Or oh, you just me? sort of know you can find it? No, I just know I could find it. I mean, if I really wanted to get in there, I could probably contact CBS and see yeah. if we could get like some of the tapes. Although my... Uh, my first officer, Tim Young, um, he, we would do these things called podcasts and we would just record because we'd have all the audio going through the, into the, the iPad. We would record us basically BSing throughout the entire show, uh-huh. but we would especially record when uh, bands would play yeah. on, on stage, like a guest would be on. And because I would say like, I've said this before, but like about 90% of the bands were just like, okay. 
Yeah. We're like, okay. And, or what would, could be called like corporate music. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, not to say that the artists didn't believe in what they were doing, all uh -huh. that stuff, but it just wasn't, it wasn't that great. Right. And, uh, and so we would be commenting like live, it would be like live over commenting oh, while they were playing. And, uh, it was, you know, it never felt bad about it. Cause we were just like, Oh, we're just allowing ourselves to do this. Yeah. It's like, we're just going to do this and we don't really mean any harm. You know, uh -huh. we're just kind of, Oh, can you use that chord, that chord progression? Okay. So using that chord progression. Oh, okay. There's that soft injured vocal style again. Okay. Oh, I see that's, that's popular. Oh yeah. shit. Oh, drums aren't really there. Oh, someone's pressing play on a, on a laptop behind the stage. Oh, I see. They're not really playing that. Okay. Whatever. Yeah, just, and, and everyone just yeah. caught chiming in and caught, and it's great. We have all, we have hours and hours and hours of this. And you're backstage doing this. No, we're, we're on the band. Stage. You're on the band. <laughs> yeah. This is during the show. Yeah. So we're just like quiet. We calmly, like we're up on the microphone, just kind of commenting like this. And, you know, they're on stage. It's like, oh, he's wearing that jacket. I don't know if that jacket's going to get in the way. It's like, oh, well, a nice try. Almost a little pitchy. You know, but it, was, it was crazy. But also to be fair, when they were incredible bands like Paramore or, uh, I don't know, people get seriously perform and sing and had something there was no podcast like we you know yeah we just listened because it was did amazing you, did you support any of them support like would you play uh keyboards or anything oh, with the band no that was one of my rules when i joined okay. when i when i agreed to the late night i said we wouldn't be a cover band for okay we wouldn't sub because right. i just thought it always looked bad whenever i saw david letterman like you know um Paul, Paul, Schaefer. Paul Schaefer, like saying, yeah, man, you know, like yeah. they're like in their suits or whatever. Uh -huh. And there's like some hip young artist and they're behind playing. The they're amazing musicians, like a hundred percent. They're incredible musicians, but it just looks weird. It's like right. these older dudes with like this young singer on yeah. there and they're like jamming, but they're, they kind of look cheesy because they're in suits. And, and I was like, I don't, I don't want that. I don't, right. and it's like, if they want to bring a band, yeah, like don't be lazy. Right. Right. Like, like spend some money, bring a band. So if the band, if, if you had to rank the late night bands, I'm going to read you the ones that I wrote down. Oh my you gosh. tell me, you tell me the order they go in. Okay. Uh, Fred Armisen and the 8G band on Seth Meyers. I didn't hear them enough to know, but I would say they're probably, they're probably solid up there. The Roots. Oh yeah. They're, yeah. They're solid again, like top, top three or four for sure. Um, John Batiste on, on the, uh, Colbert show. Uh, an amazing band, an amazing band. Yeah. Top five for sure. Uh, Letterman's band, Paul Schaefer, Anton Fig. Uh, an, an amazing band, like an amazing band, but it was also kind of, they were like a mid, like, you know, in the talk show history, they were like kind of middle, yeah. I guess, uh, they were amazing musicians, but they were kind of like studio musicians right? and they, you know, played covers and things and, uh, they had a good time. It was good. It was like a studio musician jamathon, and yeah. it was dope. But as for like my tastes yeah. of what I would consider like, Oh, that's interesting. You know, like yeah. I, I would be like, they're solid as fuck, but I, I don't know. And I think they did a good job. And you did, I don't know if you remember, uh, my best friend was the head writer over there, Mike Gibbons. Do you remember Mike Gibbons? Oh, I do. Yes. Totally. Yeah. So he, Crazy. uh, he told me that once in a while they would have the balls to give him a note to bring to you. Like, can you ask Reggie if he'll do something like this? And then they'd come back and they'd be like, did you tell Reggie? And he'd be like, yeah. Is he going to do it? No. <laughs> 
It's true. It's true. I mean, I wasn't trying to be difficult. It's just, you know, but also it was to be expected. I told them, yeah. you know, I they knew, you know, mm-hmm. and then oftentimes the showrunner, Ben Winston, would like be in the ear in comms or whatever. He'd be like, ah, oh, Reg, um, I know you're not into doing these types of things usually, but um, we just thought it'd be funny because of the crossover. I mean, and if he explained it and yeah. I was like, that sounds cool. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We'll come yeah. up with something. Yeah. You know, and then we would like kind of riff on something and we, uh-huh. and we play it to them like really quietly, like the instruments that you couldn't hear from the audience that were going direct. Right. They would play and be like, what do you think about that? And you'd be like, oh yeah, that's perfect. I'd be like, okay, great. So that's what we'll do. Yeah. You know, so I was very collaborative in yep. the moment, but there are many times when they would ask me, I'd be like, no, that's, that's uh, right, not going to right. happen. <laughs> Um, did, did, and what was the thing you used to do, uh, Reggie's question? Oh, Reggie's question. Yeah. Yeah. And where did that come from? That came from comedy bang bang. Uh, oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. They they never said it officially, but it totally came from comedy bang bang Uh because Scott Ackerman would always ask me to, to ask Reg, do you have a question for the, and they're like, they just took that. Um, was Scott upset about that? You know, I never asked Scott about that. I should ask Scott about that. Mm. That'd be kind of interesting. Yeah, uh, I, I'm sure Scott was like, whatever. I mean, it wasn't my idea. So, I mean, maybe maybe Scott's like, con- he, maybe he's like micro harboring this thing, thinking uh, that I I took it. But yeah. I'm, I'm going to clear that up with it. But uh, yeah, it was just the same thing. So I would ask a question, just a random improvised question to the guests. Uh, and yeah, they just let me say whatever. It was. What's the best question you ever asked? Oh, man. I don't know. I mean, they. I think Vulture once like ranked the the questions for like a year. Like, every year they would release like, really? um, a ranking, like the best <laughs> or whatever. I don't remember because they're always improvised. But I I mean, I remember asking Obama about aliens. No. The existence of aliens. Really? That was, that was cool. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. What did he say? He It was the first time apparently in history that he, I, and I guess technically a, an American president or former president, actually made com- I comments. I think I remember him kind of going like, there's something there, yes. but he didn't get into yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. He was just like, there's phenomena and there are things that are unexplainable how they move and like why yeah. something is able to move like that and those right. types of things. But we don't know, but you know, so he was just kind of, he was just reaffirming what we already knew, you know, from the footage and stuff like that. But that was pretty cool. What, what's your take on alien life? Cause it seems like it's, bubbling up to the surface in the last couple of years, doesn't it? Yeah. There's, I mean, it's an interesting time. And some people think it's part of a a disinformation operation, Mm -hmm. um, uh, some kind of thing before something might happen. You know, it's very conspiracy theory. I, I I kind of, I don't like conspiracy theories so much. I, I hold them lightly in my hand, but I, I don't know. It's hard to say if there are, I did this on Rogan. It was so funny when I talked about this on Rogan the whole time. I was like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And I, yeah. I watched it. I was like, what are you doing? Just fucking talk. But uh, so here's my chance. But yeah, I mean, I think that it is possible that there are, there is alien life that has visited the planet or has already been here a very long time. Um, and maybe there are remnants of it in some way that are left over. Um I hold that completely possible, but I also like harder explanations. It's yeah. very weird why we don't have, there's no evidence. Right. And, and I don't try, I don't think he, I don't think we're that great at suppressing information that this many de- decades 
gone by, let's say like a hundred years of human, mm -hmm. whatever, uh, existence can't keep alien technology secret. Right, I, I think right. that's almost impossible. Yeah. And also weird why there just hasn't been a direct communication. So that that's, that's weird. Uh, there's a lot of questions. Definitely like some of the, like there's that incident that happened, I think it was in South Africa where there was like an alien, an alien craft was, it was at a school and a bunch of kids uh, found this craft and there was this being standing outside of the craft and it was communicating to them te telepathically. And they interviewed the kids later and they all had the exact same story. Really? And they had the same description and they're kids, you know? So like, why would they get together and lie? And, and it was, they're just very, they thought what they saw was real. And when I hear things like that, I'm like, wow, that's pretty incredible. But then I zoom away and then I go into simulation theory. Uh -huh. And so if this is a simulation, if this world is this reality that we're experiencing is some form of a collective simulation, then that's an interesting thing to think about. What are our aliens? Uh, are they versions of ourselves? Uh, like observe different observational forms of ourselves within the, the simulation. Yeah. Um, are they uh, just put in there as anomalies to make life interesting in the right. simulation? I, right. I don't know. It's, it's kind of strange. I definitely think there's something because there's, I've seen, you know, I, I've seen UFOs in, in Montana. I think I talk about it in the book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I couldn't explain what they were. I, there was no explanation. I'm not going to say that they were aliens, but right. I definitely saw something that back in 1986, I don't think we had that technology. Yeah. So I don't know what it is. Uh, or maybe we did have that technology. Maybe we're like what we're seeing today when we see a stealth fighter and a stealth bomber. That's 20 years, 30 years, 40 years behind what we actually have. Yeah. Who knows? Right, right. But um, I, I, th I think it's great. I think that people are talking about it. I just don't want people to get into a conspiracy hole where I think you got to keep a question mark and everything. I Always. think, I think that this culture today is very emphatic about having opinions as opposed to saying, Hey, here's something <clears throat> we should ponder and question a little bit. You know, we, we don't know the answer, but yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think there's, it's healthy to be open-minded. Yeah. You don't have to believe every stupid thing that someone that, especially when it's a fear-based thing. Right. Because cons conspiracy theories generally, they, they, they function off of it's curiosity, but it's also the desire for something fearful to be real. Right, right. And I think that's what hooks people because they get that yeah. dopamine rush of like, oh man, it's like it's all coming in. So it's crashing in on us. There's something out there and it wants to get us. And there's yeah. a conspiracy. Yeah. And I just don't believe that humans are smart enough to hold conspiracies to that level. Yeah. I, I think conspiracies exist. Yeah, um, like just, the Kennedy assassination. It's like, you know, how, how many people would have been complicit in that? And yeah. none of them really came forward. Yeah, totally. Or the moon landing, you know, yeah. like, like people are like the moon landing was staged. It's like, yeah, that is true, but it's also not true. Yes. They did stage. They had a stage that simulated the moon because uh -huh. they were practicing and they were getting shots and things like that. Right. But we actually did go to the moon. Yes. Uh, and so, and people, just, it's so funny. It's just people bending themselves into pretzels yeah, you know, yeah. about that. And I'm like, do you know how hard it would be to keep scientists? They're not really, they're not spies. No. They're scientists. Yeah. They're engineers. Uh -huh. And you're going to, you're going to hold like a thousand scientists and engineers to you're going to make them not talk about right. something then you got a janitor you got yeah, a lot of auxiliary totally. people that are yeah. walking around yeah yes yeah, people like like you know 
putting paper back in the the shelves, you yeah, know, like whatever, right, right. restocking things. Uh-huh. Like, of course, I, I just don't, I don't buy it. Yeah. I don't buy it. There's fun to think about. All right. Well, listen, I'm going to let you go. But uh, before we go, I like to close out with, uh, it's called Fastballs with Fitz. I'm going to ask you a question. You're uh, going to answer it. Sure. There's two types of people in the world. Go. People who, yeah, people who wish to know themselves and people who, yeah, people who wish to know themselves and people who are too lazy to figure that out. Yeah. Fearful or lazy? I think it's lazy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I like it. All right, listen, Reggie Watts' book, uh, I cannot recommend it enough. Great Falls, Montana, Fast Times, Post-Punk Weirdos, and A Tale of Coming Home Again. It's funny. It's rock and roll. It's uh, it's it's just, I like it because it's um, it's you. You really captured, I think, yourself in a, in, a, in a tome, and I look forward to the next one. Oh, man. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. You got it. It was great. All right.